You're listening to The Plan Podcast, episode number 40, and today I am sitting down and introducing you to the work of my friend, Al Dowd. If you listened to my two-part series about modern deep canvassing, it was episodes 35 and 36, you heard me talk a lot about Elle and the way that her work has helped shape my own activism and outreach over the years. So in today's episode, Elle is going to talk to us a little bit more about different models for community organizing, how to do the work and help shift people's perspective, how to do it without burning out, and how to dive in and get started if you're feeling timid or uncertain. Toward the end, we'll also talk about her book, Baptized in Tear Gas, which comes out this summer, and she'll share a bit of her experience with the writing and publishing process. This interview is really a long time in the making. Elle and I have known each other for nearly a decade now, and sitting down to ask her some of these questions is really just a full circle moment for me. I really hope that you enjoy the conversation and that there are things you can take away from it. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Elle, I encourage you to connect with her Facebook page. You can find it at L Dowd Ministry. She is so great at facilitating conversations, especially difficult or complex conversations about social change and social justice. And if you are someone who wants to be more engaged and wants to get more involved, watching Elle in action is a great way to learn. So, all right, let's get started. Please give a warm welcome to my friend, Elle Dowd of Elle Dowd Ministry. Thanks for tuning in to The Plan Podcast. We don't know everything, but we're putting together a plan to figure it out, one topic, an episode at a time. If your goal is to live better, do better, or be better, then this is the podcast for you. So grab your favorite pen, folks, and let's make some plans with your host, Danny Bruflot from Time is Honey. All right, Danny, let's get planning. Hey, Elle. Thanks so much for agreeing to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's jump in and just go ahead and tell everyone a bit about you and your work. Yeah, thank you. My name is Elle Dowd. I use pronouns like she, her, and hers, and I am a community organizer and an author of the book Baptized in Tear Gas and a candidate for ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which means I will be a pastor in the ELCA which is the progressive mainline denomination. And some of the work that I do is connecting the church to the wider world and trying to live out my faith in public by getting involved in the public sphere and how it plays out in public policy or politics. So I was really formed by being a part of the Ferguson Uprising, and now I continue that work here in Chicago. And I am someone who is so appreciative of your work, and I've learned so much from you over the years. And it meant so much to me recently when you gave great feedback on my two previous episodes regarding modern deep canvassing. And one piece of advice that you offered me was to try to recognize where my energy is best spent and who can actually be moved on certain issues. And I found that really, really helpful. And I was hoping that maybe you could walk the listeners through that as well. I first heard of this framework from someone else, and I can't remember where I I heard it from, but the idea is to sort of take our cues from the corporate world, which is something you won't hear me say a lot. (laughs) But if you think about marketing or advertising for, for example, an Apple product like an iPhone, Apple will put people kind of on a scale of one to 10 based on how likely they are to buy a product. So someone who is a 10 
on this sort of scale would be an early adopter, the sort of person who when the new iPhone is coming out, they're like camped out in front of the store, they're like ready to go. They don't even know that much about the product, but they're they're bought in, they're true believers. That would be like a 10. And then a one would be, you know, Ted Kaczynski out in the woods like actively anti-technology, doesn't have a phone, will never have a phone, right? Mm -hmm. And most people are somewhere in between, right? Maybe like if I put myself on this scale, I'm pretty brand loyal, for example, to Apple products, but I'm frequently like several, several generations old (laughs) in the products that I'm using. So maybe I'd be like, a six. I'm like going to probably eventually buy whatever Apple product, but I'm not going to rush out and get it. And so Apple kind of places people along this spectrum. And we can do that too on any sort of issue that we're thinking about. We can put people on at a 10. Like they are the folks who are true believers. They're out there in the streets. They're already protesting. This is what their life's about. And we can put people also, you know, at one, people who are actively hostile against whatever issue or cause that we're trying to move forward. So in the case of police brutality and state violence, a 10 would be an activist who's out there in the streets. And a one would be someone who's like an active white supremacist who not only is thinks that the movement for black lives or any of these social liberation movements is ridiculous is like actively trying to stop them. And most people are again, somewhere between those two numbers on a scale. And we're not trying to get someone who is a two to become a 10. What we're trying to do is really meet people where they're at and move them a little bit. So if if you spent some time with someone and maybe they were a two or a three on the scale, somewhere in the place of police are amazing and we need to respect them because they have hard jobs, what we might be trying to move them to is something more like the belief that most police are great and doing a good job, but there are some problems. But say you meet someone who is somewhere around a six. And they're like, yeah, there's systemic problems in policing, but maybe we just need a little bit of reform because that's what's going to fix what's going on. You might try to move that person from that six or seven to an eight or a nine where they're getting more curious about things like defunding the police or becoming committed to and learning about the abolition movement. The important thing about this scale is that Apple and we maybe don't spend that much time trying to convince people who are on the very far wide parts of the scale, like tens and ones. We don't need to convince tens because they're already camped out, right? They're already bought in. They're going to buy the Apple product. And in fact, they're probably going to advertise for us. So we don't need to send a bunch of advertisements to tens. They're there. We don't need to gear the advertisements to them. And ones, they probably aren't going to get those advertisements anyway. They're in the woods somewhere. They don't They don't care. They're not going to pay attention. And that's the same with us. We don't have to spend our energy seeking out the absolute virulent racists who are active, overt white supremacists. We can sometimes strategically choose to engage those people if we think that other people are listening and would be helped by a public conversation. But what we're really trying to do is focus on those people in the middle, maybe like 
three to seven range and see if we can move them one or two places along the spectrum. Yes, I love this so much. And it was really helpful for me and is something I have kind of had to get better at, I think, over the last couple of years. I think especially when people are new to the work, they kind of like rush in and they enjoy the challenge of the people that seem really hard. And also, I think as an Enneagram 8 for me, I kind of thrive with the challenge of people that are really difficult. And I've definitely had to learn to like protect my energy a little bit, focus it in the right spots. And as we hear a lot in the work, It's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's really important that we teach people these methods to conserve their energy so that they don't burn out so fast. Yeah, I think too, once the more you do some of this deep canvassing and conversations with people, you can see like what your gifts are along this spectrum. Like I know some people who are so good at meeting people who are like a three where they're at. And really like loving them and listening to them and being invested in them and moving them to like a four or a five. In fact, a lot of my colleagues are like those people and they're really, really gifted and very crucially important. I have found (laughs) that that's not usually me necessarily. Although sometimes, you know, it depends on relationships and people surprise you. But I have found that I think my gifts tend to be more like taking people who are sevens and challenging them into something deeper and maybe tangible solidarity and moving them towards an eight or a nine. So the more practice you have, the more you can see like, oh, my story and my style of communication really seems to vibe with and connect with these sorts of folks because I really meet them where they're at and you can see where your own gifts lie. Yes. And over the years, you've done this expertly, in my opinion. I'm a huge fan of (laughs) the way that you communicate with people and educate people. And you've shifted my perspective on a wide variety of issues. So I'm curious if there's like a specific method or framework that you follow once you've kind of assessed people and put them on this spectrum. Like, do you have a method that you use to get them shifting and changing their mind? Yeah, I'm really influenced by a few different frameworks. I don't know if you've seen the there's a trend on TikTok that's called the mosaic trend where people share about the way they've been shaped by different people in their lives. And the idea is we're kind of like a mosaic of all these different people and different interactions. And it's really beautiful. And so I have had some training and exposure to a few different frameworks. And I think all of those have shaped a little bit about the way that I interact with people. And one of them is the Alinsky style method of agitation that we use a lot of times in community organizing, where we listen deeply to someone's story and then ask really probing questions to try to move them forward and help them see what we think might be holding them back. Another framework I really love is Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. And Emergent Strategy is all about being in right relationship with change and changing big systems with relatively small interactions. And something I really love about that framework that I'm working on right now is that one of the principles is this principle of fractals, which is that our smaller parts make up our bigger parts. So our smaller interactions, they sort of mirror what the bigger systems are going to be like, which means that our closest relationships, like in our friends and our family, maybe the people we live with, the way that we interact in those relationships can really have implications 
for wider systems and in fact help us kind of be ready for that bigger systemic work. So those are two frameworks I have found really, really helpful. I'll also say that I'm very informed by my faith. Faith and community organizing have one major thing in common, and that's that they're all about relationships. So this is very much what you spoke about in the the deep canvassing episodes. But in community organizing, we say that the way we change things, so if we define power as the way to change things or make a difference, the key to power is our relationships. And our ability to make change resides in our relationships, in organized people and organized resources and and the ways that we connect with those people. And ministry and my faith is like very similar. We are supposed to be at our best, although the church frequently fails at this. We're supposed to be all about relationships. We're supposed to be about knowing each other deeply, caring about what happens to each other, and really sort of being in it together in a way, this kind of deep solidarity that recognizes our shared humanity. So those are probably the the three frameworks I'm most influenced by, but I've also been just influenced by listening to countless activists and organizers and other people who have a lot of experience in this work. That's great. Hey, I already have things written down to like look more into, which is always the case when I read anything you've written. But I also wanted to ask you, so you are now a very outspoken advocate. You protest regularly. You're in the streets. You've been tear gassed. You've been arrested. And so I'm wondering if the L from like 10 years ago could just spend an hour kind of witnessing the work that you're doing now and the way that you are advocating. What would she think? And how did you become more confident in doing this work? I think <laughs> I think L 10 years ago would be definitely surprised. I was very committed to simplistic ideas about things such as violence or power. I had really internalized a lot of narratives about what counts as violence and who gets to decide. And I hadn't really done the work of power analysis to see why violence occurs or why property destruction is sometimes part of liberation movements and sometimes is an effective part of change. And so I think the the biggest surprise that I would have is how much passion I have about really engaging that particular part of the work and that particular narrative. And so I think one of the reasons I feel confident or sort of confident speaking out and getting involved is because a lot of times I am talking to myself 10 years ago. You know, my story and my identity, obviously we're all different people, but the end of the day, I'm not that special, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of nice white girls who grew up in the suburbs in the Midwest. And so even though not everyone obviously thinks the exact same, we've been shaped by similar influences. And so the reason I feel confident is because I remember the things that I thought, the narratives I'd been taught, the ways that I was challenged and, and then I bumped up against those narratives as my values started to expand and shift. And so the the biggest thing is really to spend some time reflecting on what are the the things that used to hold you back? What are the stories and the lies that you used to believe that kept you from being all in on this particular issue in the first place and really connecting with people around that because whatever helped you 
move forward and move past some of these narratives is very likely what might move someone else who you're in relationship with. I think also it really does help to be surrounded by voices who know more than you do about stuff. And I try to do that a lot, right? Like I curate my social media feed to be tons of black activists and thinkers and liberation workers and healers. I try to read a lot of books, like most of the books that I read are by black women in particular. And so the more I'm surrounded by these voices, not that I want to speak for other people, but I can help people connect to resources and reference people back to these resources in a way that is helpful because I'm familiar. But really, I think a lot of it is to learn to push against our own fears about conflict or about confrontation and to really lean into that tension, particularly as white people, we often fear tension because it's uncomfortable and we've really been socialized to seek out comfort. But tension has gifts that it brings with it too. There is no such thing as transformation without tension. Tension is part of transformation and tension often leads to, to transformation. And so the more, you know, when you start to feel that tension in your body and you start to like want to be like, run away, run away, or whatever your normal response is, instead of feeling that tension and trying to avoid it, actively telling yourself, this is something I do, actively telling yourself to like sit in the tension and even move forward, forward towards the tension and really lean into it and listen for the gifts that that tension might be bringing. Yes. I think that's definitely something I learned from you is like that it's okay to be wrong And that's like the moment that you're going to learn something really powerful and always to like lean into the discomfort and sit there for a little bit. And I even use that and like practice that in conversations that aren't necessarily political. If somebody responds or says something to me that I kind of take offense to, I'm much Mm -hmm. better now about just like sitting back on it, even for just 10 minutes before I (laughs) respond. And it's funny how your perspective and like your emotions surrounding it can change so much. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, you know, maybe even your mind is not going to change, but you'll find the part of you that knows how to react from the place you want to react from. Right. Like, I think I am definitely, I, and this is something I'm still working on, but I can definitely feel defensive or just have like knee jerk reactions or kind of just be like, I don't know, just like that sort of almost like addiction <laughs> to be right or push forward or, or whatever. And when I sort of, I don't respond well when I'm responding from that because Mm -hmm. that need to be right actually comes from my own fragility. It comes from white supremacy. It comes from a lot of places that aren't the values that I want to hold, but you know, are things maybe I was indoctrinated into or socialized into growing up. I want to respond from my best self. I want to respond in line with my values, but you know, values are something we learn and practice. It's a muscle to get stronger as we, as we work on it and as we grow. And so sometimes you have to pause for a second and be like, okay, I'm having strong emotions. What are these emotions teaching me about myself right now? Where are these emotions coming from? Maybe there's a particular story or experience that's bringing up for you that you could deconstruct or just spend some time working through. And then sort of deciding, okay, I want to react from a place of, I don't know, for me, if I have values or I I picture my best self as someone with patience and compassion and, you know, fierce tenderness, right? Like that's my best self. And sometimes I'm that person and often I'm not. And so I have to choose to be that person. And usually that means taking a breath. 
Yeah. And I feel like I can see that in the way that you respond to people and communicate with people on certain Facebook threads and stuff where I can kind of see that come out of you where you are kind of like reaching in, finding that best self of you, the best version and like responding from that place. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it comes through. It doesn't always. Sometimes I respond sassy, but you know. (laughs) It happens to all of us. So do you have advice for people who are kind of on the sidelines and aren't sure how to like jump into advocacy? I think especially like for women where we're told that it's rude to talk about politics, that it's unladylike to be outspoken. What are things people can do to shake that discomfort and dive in? That is a great question. So what I would say is that the first most important thing to do is to reflect on yourself and your story. So this is actually very connected to talking about, you know, our, our best selves and, and reacting from a place in line with our values, but our stories really shape and form us. And they really inform what kind of work we're passionate about, what we care about. And so if you notice you're feeling really passionate about a particular issue, the first step is to take some time to reflect, maybe journal, maybe if if you have a therapist to speak with your therapist, or if you have someone who's just like a great listener, maybe to reflect with them a little bit about, wow, why does this issue mean a lot to me? Why do I, why is this um, so important to me? Because the sort of issues that you will speak most clearly about are the ones that you have done the work in making the connections to your own stories. So you mentioned in the deep canvassing episode about sort of speaking about the things that you already know about, like starting with topics that you already feel comfortable and confident talking about. And it's kind of like that because we all know our own stories better than anyone else, but sometimes we don't take the time to think about them. So if I'm really um, passionate about, for example, what is going on in Israel, Palestine right now, I've been just really upset about that and just really being like, you know, obviously as a human, we should all care about suffering in general, but why is this particular story kind of keeping me up at night and doing that reflection? Because it's the, it's the things that keep us up at night, the things that are like a fire in our belly, the things that feel so true to us that they could be written on our bones. That's the place to start. And once we've done that reflection and connecting it to our own story, the next step is to like share that story with other people and to hear more about their stories because the best way to work is collectively. So when we see those places where our our gut, our heart kind of overlaps with other people, where our stories connect, that's the place where we start building and we can get to work. And we can look for the sort of organizations and people who are already doing this work in our own communities. And that's especially true for you know suburbs and cities. But I would bet that even in small towns, there are people doing this kind of work just maybe not labeled always as, you know, community community organizers or something, right? It might be like the nice lady down the street who is so good about sharing her farm fresh eggs with people when they're going through a hard time, right? Or that person who always shows up to help out in another way. So finding the people who are already doing this work and connecting with them, because organizations have a way in particular, and people who are already doing this work have a way in particular of slicing the issue so that you know what's the first bite to get started. So for example, I care a lot about mass incarceration because of my experiences in Ferguson and because I'm a mother of black children, black teenagers now. Ending white supremacy is really big. 
And so is, you know, mass incarceration. Those are really big topics. So community organizing, we talk about slicing the issue and slicing the issue isn't about just starting somewhere that's small, right? It is about that, but it's about starting somewhere small that's strategic. That's going to kind of put, you know, a chink in the armor or kind of like a crack that then is the right strategic crack in the right place in the system to really break things open and, and be the biggest sort of bang for your buck. And so one thing that we worked on in Illinois, as an example, is the campaign to end money bond. Ending money bond in Illinois doesn't end mass incarceration, but half of the Cook County jail right now is incarcerated pre-trial because they can't pay their bond. So although it doesn't end mass incarceration, it makes a difference for a lot of people and it definitely weakens mass incarceration and weakens white supremacy. So that's kind of like the steps, right? Is reflect on your own story, find the place where like the fire is burning in your belly, ask yourself why this matters to you, share your story with other people, have them share their story, listen deeply, do some of that deep canvassing, find out more about why these things matter to them and notice the places where we overlap. And that's where we can start to build get connected with people who are already doing the work, who can help you see where to slice the issue and who can reflect with you about where you might fit in because your particular gifts and your particular story are needed. We need everyone and who you are and what you bring to movements for liberation matter. I love that. That's just very well said and like neatly packaged, which of course I always appreciate kind of efficiency, but I think it's just a really actionable plan that anybody can kind of get started with. Yeah. Yeah. I, that is very much um, a reflection of the Olinsky style method of, of community organizing. And there's more too, but if you're interested in training community organizing type trainings in that vein, the people's action network is a organization, a power organization across the United States that has different chapters in different places. And they offer really, really great trainings. They use a little bit different language than that, than the language I just used, but I'm very deeply informed by their processes in this way. Okay. People's Action Network. Interesting. So I wanted to shift and kind of end the show by talking a little bit about your book. So you recently wrote a book, Baptized in Tear Gas, and it will be published this summer. It's currently available for pre-order, right? Yes. And I was so honored to get to be part of your launch team and read an advanced copy. I absolutely loved it. And I have a full review on my blog and we'll put a link in the show notes. But now that you have written and published a book, I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for people about the writing and publishing process? I think one of the reasons that my proposal for this book was accepted is because of the platform that I already have. So my platform is not huge, right? Like it's not like enormous. On Facebook, I have like on my page, like 7,000 followers. I have, you know, a few thousand on Twitter, a few thousand on Instagram. I have on TikTok, you know, 13,000, which on TikTok is not really that much. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's not nothing, right? It's like a very modest platform. That's like a platform and like it or not, that seems to be really a part of the publishing process because the idea is if you have a platform already, it's kind of proof that there's a market for Mm -hmm. what you're saying. 
So one thing I would say is that that is something to leverage if you already have a, a significant platform or even like a decent platform of like a few thousand followers in, in different spaces to leverage that and say, you know, there are people who care about my story, want to hear my voice. And so these are people who would buy a book, right? And, and maybe encourage their friends to buy a book. And if you don't have a, a platform, that's one place to start is, is working on building up a platform. But I think there, even if you don't have a platform, you can still reach out with a proposal. What I did was I had been actually propositioned because of my social media presence by a couple of different uh, acquisition editors and for years. And they were like, you should write a book. And I'm like, literally about what? And they're like, well, you have to decide that, not us. And I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> but one day I was like on a plane thinking about how much of, it was actually many of my sermons were like about the same topic and were really taking stories from my experiences in the Ferguson uprising and putting them into sermons. And so I was like, hmm, I keep really going back to these experiences. Maybe there's a book here. And so I contacted one of the acquisition editors who I had already had contact with. So that might not be the case for everyone, but that's their job is to seek out new voices, new projects, and different publishers probably have different ways to go about this. But my publisher, Broadleaf Books, has kind of like a, a worksheet that you fill out for a proposition. And my worksheet went through the first time, but I'm told that it's very normal to go through several different editing processes and revisions and have your proposition sent back many times. And this was like just kind of random, probably because I'd already have been having conversations with the editor about what would make a good book, right? So maybe some of that pre-work was done, but not to get discouraged if your proposition or your whatever form or worksheet gets sent back to you with some feedback to make changes because that's really, really normal and just like a, a really regular part of the process. Okay, great advice. I'm going to take notes on all of that for sure. So your book is about your transformation from a white moderate from the Midwest to a pretty hardcore abolitionist. And it does such a great job of like recounting your experience and what it was like. I felt like I was there with you in so many different parts of the book. And one thing about your book that has been a point of conflict for you has been that it can be seen as a white person writing about black pain. And white people are often discouraged from profiting from that type of work, which I know you and I both understand and completely support. And one thing I've really appreciated about watching you write and launch your book is the very thoughtful approach that you have had to this and how you just navigated it all. So could you talk a little bit about that and how white people can share their experiences and help inform others without crossing that line? Yeah, I definitely feel a lot of internal conflict about this very thing because there's so many things that are true and, and they're sort of in conflict with one another. And there's these tensions, which is really normal in uh, dismantling white supremacy or navigating this kind of work. These contradictions uh, are very common. So one thing that's true is that white people, because of white supremacy, often listen better to other white people. Another thing that's true at the same time is that white people take up way too much space in racial justice movements. And so it's really hard sometimes to navigate the nuances of that. And because white supremacy is such a sticky web, 
I am sure that even though I have really tried to navigate this well, that there's going to be times that I don't navigate it well, right? Like I'm going to, or there's maybe sometimes there's no perfect way to navigate it because the systems are so entrenched that you're going to bump up against one of these things, right? So the first chapter of my book, <laughs> my editor was like, Elle, you can't stop talking people out of reading the book. <laughs> my, first, my, my first chapter of the book with a preface is all about those tensions, right? Like the tensions I feel in writing this book at all and naming them and not explaining them away and not resolving them. And there's also a list of books that I said you should really probably read first, right? If you care about abolition, here's the people to read. If you care about black theology, here's the people to read. If you care about anti-racism, and I really amplified black voices, particularly black women there. But as I was navigating this, even outside of these sort of ideological ways or resources to navigate this issue, the most important thing was leaning back into my relationships with Black activists and, and organizers and, and my friends. What I did was reach out to the communities that I am accountable to and ask them what they thought. And Black folks and even Black activists are not a monolith, so not everyone is going to feel the same way or think the same way. And I'm sure that there will be Black folks who see this book and are like, this white lady should be quiet. And that's a very valid and maybe true thing. But when I spoke with the people that I'm in deep relationship with, who know me, who know my story, who know the way I communicate, they said, oh, please write this book. Because it was really geared towards white church people in particular, not exclusively, but you know, that was like the market. And they were like, we want your voice out there. And another thing that I really tried to do was to amplify stories, things that I saw or experienced while in the Ferguson uprising or while in Chicago. But every time that I used a story that was someone else's story that wasn't, you know, public knowledge, like in the newspapers or something, I would reach out to them and send them what I had written and say, are you okay with this being included? Is there something else that you'd like to be included? Or is there anything that you'd like to change? And actually no one had me change anything. But the idea is, you know, my story belongs to me, but it's not really that neat and tidy because our stories interact and, and overlap with other people. And so on the one hand, again, here's that tension. It's really important to lift up those other stories and, and voices so that it's not just a story all about a white lady in the story of black liberation. That would be ridiculous. And at the same time, I don't want to put people in danger or exploit them by using their stories. And so that consent and relationship is really, really important. And finally, I paid Black folks for their expertise and advice. I had a, a Black woman who was a sensitivity editor who did a really thorough job of asking questions and telling me what lines in my book I should really reframe or change. And her name is Jess Davis, and I highly recommend her for sensitivity editing. And, you know, I asked, again, some of my Black friends and mentors, and one in particular is Pastor Lenny Duncan, who has also been published and is an author as well as a, a pastor in my tradition. And I said, I don't know if I should write this because white people take up so much space in these sort of conversations. And he said, yes, write as if that is true. So 
I tried to keep that sort of in the forefront of my brain when I would share things that happened to me. Anytime I shared something that was uh, traumatic or difficult, I would tell my story and then tried my best to point back and say, now, if this happened to me, how do you think that black folks are treated? And this is my story of being hurt by the police. This is what I saw happen to the black activists next to me and look at how much worse it was. So to use the story to draw people in because maybe they relate to me, but then to always be pointing back out to the people who are most affected, who are on the front line of this work. And finally, financially is really important. I did not want to make money off of this book. So for this book, 100% of the money that I would make on the audiobook or the ebook or the regular print book the money for writing it, any of that money is being redistributed to black activists and liberation organizations and political prisoners and people who've lost family members to state violence and and bail funds and and things like that. And that's not because I'm like a good person, right? This isn't me being like giving charity away because like I'm such a nice white person. No, this is me redistributing that money because it actually is not mine to begin with. I have access to this platform in large part because of my privilege. And I had access to this knowledge and this transformation 100% in part because of the Black folks who taught me. And so this isn't me like being so nice because I'm like giving money away. This is me in gratitude, putting the money where it belongs and giving it to my teachers, really. So I think thinking a lot about materially how do we make a difference in this work? Like, it's not just about the ideology of making sure we're not profiting off of Black pain. It's actually making sure that we don't literally profit off Black pain by redistributing any of that kind of wealth. And that was a hard decision for me. Like, I am unemployed and just freelancing right now. Like, it's not that I couldn't use the money, you know? But I really felt convicted that it was the right thing to do and that I am grateful to my teachers. And so I have kept that commitment. I think that's really a kind of a powerful shift in the perspective that it's not a charitable donation from you. It's you putting the money where it belongs, like money that never belonged to you and doesn't belong to you. You're putting it where it should be. That's good. I wanted to come back to one thing that you said. You said sometimes white people learn best from other white people. And I think that that for me especially is true in like my relationship with you and the way I've learned from you over the years. I think it's not only that white people learn better from other white people, but sometimes they only hear other white people. I think especially today um, when so many of us are getting our information from social media, we tend to only hear what other white people are putting out there. And I mean, I know for sure if, you know, seven, eight years ago, if you hadn't been posting about your experience in Ferguson, about what you were seeing in the streets, about how it was conflicting with what was actually being portrayed in the media, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been paying attention to it. I probably wouldn't have ever heard anything about it. And when that same situation came to my home state of Minnesota, I think I would have also seen that whole situation differently. And definitely having kind of lived through your experience through your posts gave me that perspective when Philando Castile was killed and Dante Wright and George Floyd. Through all of those, like it really impacted the way that I processed it, I responded to it, and I advocated about it. And so I just wanted to say I thought that that was also just a really helpful perspective. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm always like really grateful 
when people say that anything that I've done has like made a difference because so often in ministry or in activism, we don't always know, you know, the work that we're doing, how successful it is or not, or if it's actually worth it. It's not like there's some jobs where you see the immediate fruits of your labor and it's definitely not one of those kind of jobs. You know, it's, it's hard to see if you're making a difference until people tell you. So thank you for that. Yeah, I feel like I always try my best to (laughs) just send you a quick message or leave a comment to like let you know when things are landing because I I know especially in online work, it can always feel like screaming into the void no matter what the topic is. And I always really appreciate hearing little messages, just little pieces of reassurance from people. And so just know that you're making a difference and you communicate so clearly to people. I think also this idea that, you know, white people sometimes can only hear from other white people is in large part because the way our society is structured is so segregated. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of white people who don't know a lot of black folks. And even the white people who do know black folks, maybe from work or, or from something else, many of us know them more like as acquaintances and not really like deep friendships, right? Not like the sort of person you call on moving day or the people that you have over for dinner. And so those aren't necessarily the relationships where you're going to hear the most honest perspectives because people have to protect themselves. And so we are so, white folks are so insulated because of segregation that this idea of, of hearing black voices, frequently there has to be a bridge of another white person because white people are in each other's spheres more often because of these systemic issues. And so one helpful thing that white people can do is to connect people to black voices that are making a difference. I think that that is a huge part of the problem and definitely something that I've noticed over the years, the more my own network has gained more people of color in it, just how much my perspective has changed and how, you know, how many more experiences you hear from people. And even just on like Facebook and Instagram, I feel like my my comment threads or my inbox, it's just so much more diverse in like what people are experiencing and what people are sharing. It's just really amazing when you kind of, you know, when you know more people and then you understand and hear more experiences, it really shifts your mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So let's end on a little bit of a happy note. I want to know something that makes you feel optimistic about the future. I typically say that I don't always feel optimistic, but I feel hopeful. Mm. And for me, there's a difference. It's being optimistic almost, it's almost like putting like a, like a positive spin on something, right? Whereas feeling hopeful, when I hear the word hopeful, I really think of hope is something that you have in the face of impossible odds, right? Like it's actually like maybe not that optimistic sometimes that things are going to work out and hope is like a defiant thing that we hold on to. And so I do feel hopeful about the future. And one of the things that makes me feel most hopeful about the future is listening to folks like Dr. Angela Davis, who has said that the moment that she sees us in right now is one of the most important, crucial moments for social change that she has ever seen. And Angela Davis is one of the architects of the abolition movement. She's a former Black Panther. She's been doing this work since like the 60s, very publicly. So if Angela Davis says this moment is different than other moments, and she's seen all these liberation movements, waves of liberation movements come and go, 
I believe her. (laughs) And so I do feel really hopeful about that. And I also feel hopeful because I know, you know, I wasn't an abolitionist seven years ago. I became an abolitionist in 2015. I went to seminary in 2016. I was telling my classmates and colleagues at a pretty progressive seminary in 2016, I was telling people about abolition and they're looking at me like I have three heads, right? (laughs) And then now in starting, you know, around 2020, 2021, I'm seeing those same classmates having conversations with their communities and family members about abolition and they've become abolitionists. And so I think the way that the conversation has changed and the shifts that have happened in the past five to 10 years really make me feel hopeful about the future because we're having conversations in the mainstream that even a few years ago, I could never have believed that we were having. And so I am hopeful. Maybe this is optimistic too. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful and maybe optimistic that we will see abolition in our lifetime. And because I really believe it's coming, I'm excited about the ways that we can be a part of making that happen. And so dear listener, (laughs) I like invite you into this work. I really think that this is the direction that we're going, that we're going to get there. And you can be a part of making that happen. You can be an abolitionist. You can look back and say that you had a part in this movement. Yes, I love that. I think you said that somewhere in the past, and it kind of got me in the heartstrings, the idea that we can all be in this work together. We can all be abolitionists. And I wouldn't have called myself an abolitionist uh, probably a year ago, but in the last like six to 12 months, it definitely like shifted for me where I was like, no, this is a title that I own. Like I am very invested in this work and I want to see this through to the end. Yeah, I think, I think too, like there's, it kind of reminds me. So I'm, you know, this Danny, I'm bisexual and there's like almost like stages that people have when they like come out. Right. And it's because you know, when I came out, I was a little bit of a different person back then. And as I've grown, I have different levels of self-understanding. And so I kind of feel that way too with abolition work. When I first became an abolitionist, I wasn't an abolitionist because I thought abolition would work. I was an abolitionist because I saw what was happening was not working. So in 2015, I couldn't have told you anything about abolition except for that I was just so fed up with how things were that I knew there had to be a better way. And over time, I've learned more, right? So I'm, I'm an abolitionist because I do think that, that, that it will work. And I've learned more about different models that different communities have used and proposed. And I've learned more of kind of maybe, you know, some theory or background about abolition. But I think like, it's really normal to sort of test the waters and be like, hmm, explore a little bit, explore a little bit more and see what questions, where those questions lead you and, and how it changes and forms you and develops who you are. I, I could really do an hour long show talking with you more about religion, more about sexuality, more about abolition, <laughs> but we're right to the end now. And I just wanted to make sure to give you time to let people know where they can find you and connect with you. And something else that you do that I think is really cool is you work with churches. So you do, what's it called? Pulpit? Uh, yeah. Pulpit supply. Is pulpit supply. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, preach for your pastor. You know, yeah. sometimes they're on vacation and you like time off and I come preach, but sometimes pastors just invite me to come if they just would like my perspective or voice in the pulpit. So yeah, I do pulpit supply workshops, writing gigs, speaking keynotes, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And people can kind of apply or fill out a form to work with you on your website, which is ldowd.com. 
And that's where they can also find a link to your Facebook page, which I highly recommend following. It's one of my favorite places on the internet. And they can also pre-order your book there as well, right? Yes. Yep. They can also sign up on the website to a newsletter. And the newsletter is pretty infrequent. It's an email that goes out seriously less than once a month many times. But the newsletter is mostly about the book in particular. So when there's developments around the book, Baptized in Tear Gas, From White Moderate to Abolitionist, that's where I notify people first is on the newsletter. So it will also give you sign up links if it's more helpful for you to have stuff go just directly to your inbox. But yeah, ldowd.com is the website. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash ministry or on TikTok. If you like TikTok, just like kind of moderately cringy church humor <laughs> at my handle is ministry. And then on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, my handle is HowNowBrownDowd. HowNowBrownDowd. So I would love to hear from you all. And you can pre-order the book most anywhere that you would normally pre-order books, IndieBound or Barnes & Noble or any of those other places. Wonderful. Elle, thanks so much for being here and for walking us all through this. It was really great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in and making some plans with us today. You can find the show notes for all episodes over at planpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to tell someone about it by sharing this episode with them and taking a moment to rate us and review us in the App Store. Don't forget, we've got plans next week, and we will see you then.